Welcome to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast, where we share stories of life change and inspire you to take a next step in your own faith journey, to discover your purpose, and honor God with your life. If you've been listening to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast over the past few weeks, we're really digging into keeping hope in mind, the intersection of faith and mental health. Today's topic is a difficult one. We discuss suicide and self-harm. If this is a difficult topic for you, we just want to make you aware ahead of time. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the Cedar Creek Church Podcast. We're in the middle of our series, Keeping Hope in Mind, where we examine the intersection of faith and mental health. Over the past few weeks, we've had many different guest speakers, and today we have another special guest, along with Miss Terry Lee, we have Sarah J. Robinson. Terry, would you like to tell us a little bit about Sarah? Absolutely. So um, Sarah is a national speaker and author um, of the book, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, um, a fantastic book. Uh, Sarah was here at Cedar Creek Church back in November um, of 2022 and one of was one of our keynote speakers at our Mental Health in the Modern Church Conference. And so um, we are welcoming Sarah back uh, to be with us via uh, podcast today. And Sarah, it's great to see you and to hear you. It's so good to be with you again, too. So Sarah, will you tell us a little bit about your story and um, your journey? Absolutely. So I often say I don't remember a time before dealing with depression and anxiety. I remember being on the elementary school bus as a kid and having these images popping into my head about like jumping out of the back of the bus and getting run over and things like that at like eight and nine years old. And, you know, I didn't know that wasn't normal. I didn't know that those were intrusive thoughts about suicide and self-harm. And so I just kind of kept that to myself. And you know, just went through the motions, went to school, did well in school. Um, but as I got older, that ache and um, depression just gnawed on my insides. And it just became more and more overwhelming and something that just really robbed me of hope of ever experiencing any joy or beauty or anything good in my life. When I was almost 16, I met Jesus in a little warehouse church on a Friday night when I was supposed to be out partying, but someone had invited me to youth group. And so I said, sure, I'll come. And I had this really incredible experience with the presence of God and thought everything was going to get better. And my new church community really believed that too, and kind of fed into that belief that, you know, you meet Jesus and you go from glory to glory and you're a new creation. And just everything from there on out is full of joy and hope and happiness and purpose. But as the weeks and the months went on after my initial honeymoon period, you know, all zeal and no real depth there, I began to realize that depression and anxiety, even though I still didn't have words for it, was still there. And so I really internalized a lot of shame that I couldn't be this joyful Christian and I was supposed to be. And I heard people say things like, well, you know, you shouldn't be so focused on yourself if you just serve others, if you 
pray these scriptures over yourself, if you worship more, if you witness, if you go on missions trips. And so I did it all. I was there every time the doors were open at church. I was witnessing to kids in my school. I was, um, you know, doing everything. We were praying, we were passing out food in the community, but nothing changed for me. And so I found myself attempting suicide after I'd already come to faith in Christ, after I'd already heard the good news of the gospel. And that's not the story we're really supposed to tell. And that's not the story that I believed I was supposed to tell. And so I believed there was something really, really wrong with me. And it would take many, many years before I would learn what it means that God sometimes allows suffering to remain in our lives that we live in a broken world where there's illnesses, including mental illnesses, that sometimes are lifelong journeys. Uh, Many years before I would actually get a diagnosis for depression and anxiety, see a doctor, see a therapist, and and get the help I needed. Um, So it, it was a long journey. And along the way, there were some people who you know, said some really hurtful things. Sometimes in the church, we don't necessarily know how to respond to people's suffering. But there were also some people who said some things that were really um, hope and life-giving to me. And so, you know, I often say people say terrible things, but we still need them because we are such a mixed bag in um, so many of our relationships. But that was Definitely a big part of my journey was the people who came alongside me and encouraged me and gave me permission to be broken and to find the healing that I needed. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for being so transparent and willing to share your story, Sarah. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. we know that one of the biggest obstacles to people raising their hand and saying, I need help. I need support. I don't really know what's going on, but I think something's going on is stigma. And so yeah. as we welcome your transparency and um, just your very realness, I appreciate that as you help us punch our fist through the wall of that stigma. Mm-hmm. So hopefully other people will will say that it's okay not to be okay and that help and resources and hope is available and is out there. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So one of the things we wanted to cover today in our discussion, and and that's what this is, a a conversation, um, is how you come alongside those who are struggling. And in your story, you said there were people who spoke hope and life into your situation. So are there any specific examples or people that you remember um, that we might be able to keep in mind when we encounter, and I say when because it's not if, but when, when we encounter those in our lives or our small groups, home groups, um, even, you know, on the sidelines at a soccer game when you're watching mm-hmm. your kids play, how do we make sure that we're speaking hope and life to those people? There's so many examples, but there's two instances that really come to mind. And The first is when I was in college, I was in a really deep depressive episode and still didn't know that was what was going on. I just didn't have the language for it, wasn't really um, in a community that had a lot of knowledge about mental health. And so I figured I could just try harder and run faster and serve more and do all the things 
And the stress and the shame were driving me to cope by self-harming. And a lot of people don't realize that that is actually a coping technique, even though it's not a healthy one. Um, It's something that helps people to gain more control over their emotions and just this overwhelming experience they're having. And so I'd been really struggling with that for a while and knew this couple from my church who seemed a little bit more comfortable with mess than some other people. They were a little bit more vulnerable, just kind of talked about areas where they struggled and and just didn't have their stuff together. And they were probably like eight or 10 years older than me at the time. So, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And I was getting to the point where I knew if I didn't get help, I wasn't going to be able to stop self-harming and I wasn't going to survive. And so I showed up on their doorstep at 10 o'clock one night and walked into their living room and told them what was going on and was so terrified and ashamed and embarrassed. And they looked me in the eye and said, I'm not disappointed in you. And they said, I don't think any less of you. Um, We still love you. God still loves you. And we don't have the answers, but we're going to help you figure it out. And they did. They just committed to walking alongside me at that point. They didn't know to have me get into therapy or see a doctor or anything like that. They just did what they knew how to do, which was have me stay with them and eat dinners with them and just not be alone, essentially. Um, So that was one of the really big instances that was a turning point for me. And another was probably eight or nine years later, um, I was at a large church at that point and was part of a very big youth ministry team and um, a youth group, a small group leader and, um, you know, doing a lot, a lot of ministry. And the director of our ministry looked at me one day and said, honey, you deal with depression. And I felt like my stomach just dropped completely through my shoes because no one had ever told me that before. And it also was just like very to the point, like this is what's wrong with you. Even though, you know, we weren't having a conversation about what's wrong with me. She just was bold enough to say, hey, I can see this. And she followed it up with, I know because I deal with it too. And I had heard her talk about depression before, and I had heard her um, encourage other people to seek help, but I'd also watched her do her very best to love people and serve people and make an impact Mm -hmm. and love Jesus. And after that initial like gut drop moment, my eyes just filled with tears and it just felt like freedom for the first time to be able to name that this is a thing that's out there. It's it's not something wrong with me. I'm not a terrible person or a bad Christian. It's an illness that I'm experiencing. And because she had the boldness and the courage and the care and the wisdom to say that to me because she could recognize it from her own experience, I was able to start the slow process of learning to take care of myself. Wow. So I want to expand just a little bit on one of the 
words that you've used, Sarah, and talk about it a little bit more. And you use the word self-harm. Um, and mm. so for our listeners, um, some people feel like self-harm and suicide are synonymous, that they are the same thing, that self-harm is a suicide yeah. attempt. Um, and so I want our listeners to kind of understand the difference between those two and to also recognize the correct actions to take, especially if we have parents that are listening mm-hmm. to this and they discover that their um, child or adolescent may be self-harming. And so can you help us understand the difference in those two and what the correct actions would be if a parent would discover that their child is or youth is self-harming? Absolutely. So in... The mental health world, the actual term they use for self-harm is non-suicidal self-injury. So by definition, it is not done with an attempt to end your life. Um, It can be any action that's intended to cause pain or damage to your body in some way. But the purpose is to somehow manage strong negative emotions. So some people... Um, self-harm because they feel a lot of shame. That was always a trigger for me. Some people because they feel numb and numbness can be really overwhelming and they just want to feel something, feel alive. Um, Some because they feel bad about themselves and want to punish themselves. There's a lot of different reasons. So one thing that my friends did that was really great when they found out I was self-harming is they asked me directly like, how how close were you to killing yourself, basically? They were, you know, pretty blunt. They didn't know, like, gentle terms or anything. But they just asked, you know, were you thinking about ending your life? And I was able to explain that, you know, I was not trying to. But, yes, I've been having a lot of thoughts about that. So it's really hard and scary to ask those questions. And... Gosh, so much more for a parent. I just, I have a toddler. I can't imagine him being a teenager and discovering this and and having to ask him those questions. But the fact that you're willing to ask and you care to ask is going to tell them that you care and you want to help them. So that's the first thing you need to know. You also need to know that if they're not thinking about suicide, you're not going to put that idea in their head. It's not going to make them suicidal if you ask. The next thing you want to do after that, um, you know, you want to make sure that they're safe. So if they say that they are thinking about ending their life, you want to find out, is it just thoughts that kind of pop into your head? Is it just feeling discouraged and hopeless and depressed and thinking, I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up? Or is this something that you actively have a desire to do? Are you making plans? Because that's going to make the difference between, okay, we're going to get you into counseling and see your doctor, and we're going to the emergency room. Um, If somebody is imminently going to harm themselves, you go to the emergency room or a mental health emergency room if you um, have one. If not, you make sure they're not alone, you make sure they can stay safe, and you get them into um, mental health care as soon as possible, like within a few days. Same thing you do with self-harm. So obviously, if they're not immediately um, going to try and end their life and they're not self-harming to an extent that it needs medical attention, then you need to get them into mental health care as soon as possible. 
Um, so you want them to see a doctor, you want them to see a good licensed therapist that works with young people. Um, and you want to do whatever you can to help them stay safe. If there's an item they use to harm themselves, try to take it, lock it up somewhere. If there's anything else that may be, um, used to hurt themselves, try and, and make sure they don't have access to that. Um, but the big thing to know is you don't have to have all the answers. You have to love your kid, let them know you're committed to walking through this with them, and then find the resources and the people who do have a lot more answers. Right. I, I think to highlight, too, that um, the non-suicidal self-injury or the self-harm, while it's meant to help release some of these very painful emotional or mental uh, situations that the person is feeling, um, that it's important for us to remember that even though it's intended just as self-harm, it can become a medical emergency. And it so can. we want to be aware of that. You know, with young folks, if they are cutting on the arms or, you know, yes. some sort of um, non-suicidal self-injury like that, they may not necessarily know that the radial artery is located yeah. where it is on the arm. So we want to we want to be aware that it is um, intended for self-harm and to, as a coping mechanism, but that it can become a medical emergency and we need to be able to respond to that yes. if it should happen. So if this is a coping mechanism and you're kind of in the throes of the conversation as the parent and you take away the coping mechanism, what does that do to the situation? That's a really good point. So that can be scary because then they're not going to know what to do instead. So you can look up online. There's lists of things to try instead of self-harming. If someone wants to feel a sensation, like if they're doing it so that they can like feel alive, they can hold an ice cube. Um, you know, that's, it doesn't feel good, but it is a strong sensation that you can, you know, use to kind of bring yourself back into your body. If you have really intense feelings that you, you just need to let out, you can journal them. You can punch a pillow. You can go on a run, you know, look for alternate things that are going to help them, um, kind of get into their body in a way that's going to help them feel grounded and safe. Grounded is a term we use in the mental health world, um, that just means you're connected to your body and the moment that you're in. Um, because sometimes when we get these really overwhelming thoughts and emotions, we can kind of disconnect or dissociate a little bit. And then that can be even more distressing. Um, you can tell them that they can come to you for a hug. That may be helpful for some kids. It may not be, um, you know, you can just brainstorm with them. What are some other things we can do to help you stay safe? Yeah, and that's one of the things that a psychologist or a counselor or mm -hmm. a psychiatrist will help put in place once we do escalate them up to professional care as quickly as possible as parents or as youth pastors or, or loved ones, people who work in the schools. Um, they will help put other or identify other coping mechanisms for those individuals. Mm -hmm. And once those coping mechanisms are established, then they will begin to encourage to withdraw the non-suicidal self-injurious actions. And so, um, you know, as those other supportive coping mechanisms are put in place, 
um, I think it's a great thing to remember. So it sounds like parents just need to do what they can in the moment. Yes. And then seek extra help. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things as parents, I mean, we automatically sense we, we're fearful, we're mm-hmm. shocked, we're in disbelief that, oh my goodness, my child is doing this and why are they doing this? And so we have almost that feeling of horror to begin with. But one of the most important things I think that we can do for these young folks is to acknowledge their pain. It yes. is it is pain and it is emotional and mental anguish, sometimes that they know the calls for and sometimes they have no idea at the time until they're led through a previous trauma or something else in their background, what could potentially be causing them um, to do actions like this. And so acknowledging their pain and just saying, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for what you're going through. We love you and we're here for you Um, and continue to walk with them until we can escalate them up to that professional care is a very important thing for us to do as adults. And as we're coming up on Mother's Day, Um, I thought it would be appropriate just to talk a little bit about um, postpartum depression, because I think it's something that um, many mothers deal with that they may not talk about. I know it Mm -hmm. is becoming easier to talk about these things um, because of the work of you two ladies (laughs) and many others like you um, to take away the stigma. But Sarah, is that something that you've walked through or that you are familiar with? Very familiar with it. I, so... Coming into my pregnancy, I had a lifelong history of depression, strong family history of mental illness and postpartum health, mental health issues in particular. And so in my case, I was really proactive. And I think that helped us avoid the worst of it. So I talked to my doctors, I talked to my midwives and my pediatrician about what options are going to be safe as far as medication and, you know, kind of weighing the options because it's always a, a cost versus benefit. And so, you know, a lot of times moms are afraid, like, Oh, I don't want to be on a medication while I'm pregnant or while I'm breastfeeding. But there are some that are really well studied and tend to have really great outcomes. And in general, um, if a mom is depressed when she's pregnant or breastfeeding, that has a bigger negative effect on the baby than the medication. So we um, started, I started on a low dose of an antidepressant about two, three weeks before my due date. Um, I had some really specific plans in place for self-care and support from my community, had, you know, several conversations with my husband about things we would be watching out for, um, and, you know, had my counselor on speed dial. Um, so I think that having those things in place really helped me to avoid the deep darkness. At the same time, I did still experience um, a fair amount of anxiety after uh, my son was born, which I know there's a, an amount that's normal Um, but then it can go above and beyond. Um, I also didn't know that most moms experience intrusive thoughts of either their baby being hurt or hurting their baby. Um, And so those intrusive thoughts, when they popped up for me, were really surprising um, until I found studies that show that, you know, something like 90% 
of parents experience those. And so some of those, you know, more, um, subtle things, you know, we talk more about postpartum depression, um, but we don't talk as much about postpartum anxiety or intrusive thoughts. And so I think those were things that surprised me a little more. You mentioned a great word there, and I'm going to highlight that as well. You're doing such a good job with just helping us lay this foundation. <laughs> um, the word proactive, um, you know, 21% of the mamas out there um, may struggle with postpartum depression after delivery, and it's not confined just to the mamas. Postpartum mm-hmm. depression can affect the daddies as well. Yeah. And if there has been a history of depression prior to the pregnancy, then that increases the risk a little bit of experiencing postpartum depression. So knowing that arms us uh, with the knowledge that we need to be proactive on this and to be aware of the signs and symptoms. And like Sarah did, to not be um, afraid of having conversations with our um, physicians about the possibility of medication. Medication's not necessary for all, but is a very helpful, useful, uh, necessary thing for some folks. And, and it is a very mm-hmm. good treatment. And so, but just being aware that, that it, it's again, okay. It's common and impactful and that you're not alone as you experience some of these things, mamas, if you're out there and you're experiencing this. Definitely. Sarah, if you um, had the opportunity to share one or two nuggets of gold with parents out there who are listening, what advice would you give them um, in things to do to help their children or their adolescents develop hope and resilience? in a very difficult time during their life. How do we give them hope and and help them develop resilience um, as they're inundated with so many things in their life right now? Gosh, that is such a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is letting your kids see you mess up and recover from it. I think there tends to be a few different kind of extremes in parenting as I'm learning. Everyone has a lot of opinions about everything, but I I've seen sort of the extreme of like I'm going to be your best friend and then the extreme of like super authoritarian, like do what I say, not as I do, like don't talk back kind of stuff. And somewhere in the middle there's I think a a balance where you can let your child see you as a person and let them see you mess up and make mistakes, especially when you make a mistake in your relationship with them, own up to it and apologize and mend that relationship. And the reason I believe that is key to kids learning to have resilience and hope is that we live in such a social media saturated world where all that gets posted online is the highlight reel with the filters and everyone has to look so perfect. So it creates this mindset that I have to do everything right. And it's going to be catastrophic if I don't. And they probably wouldn't put it in words like that. But there's this kind of deep sense of inadequacy that I really believe is being fed in our culture these days. And so I think they need to see you model messing up and recovering from it and it being okay. 
I think you also need to specifically tell them that it's okay when they mess up. I think you need to walk with them through their mistakes, their, you know, times they say something that hurts someone's feelings or their bigger mistakes if they make um, an unsafe choice or something like that. And know that you're not going to reject them. You're not going to shame them. You're not going to kick them out, but you're going to help them find a way back to a healthier path. Um, And it's so hard because social media is such a big thing, but it may be helpful for your kid to help them find healthy limits around that. If that means they shouldn't be on it at all, that's what's right for them. If that means, um, you know, limited time on it, that may be what's right for them. We need to get kids back into the real world and um, having having a bit more perspective. Like we fall down, we get up. We make mistakes, we recover. And I think when you have a backlog of experiences like that, the next time something comes up that's hard, you have something to draw from. So you want your kids to have a backlog of experiences from the time they're super little of falling down and getting back up, of messing up and finding a solution, of being forgiven when they do something hurtful, because those things are going to give them hope that there is a good future and hard things don't last forever. Yeah, that is such a good word. And um, I think for me as a as a parent, three words come to mind in listening to what you're saying. And those three words would be uh, being okay with saying in front of our children and encouraging them to say this too, I don't know. That's so good. Um, I don't know. Um, because from what I'm hearing from so many um, adolescents and young adults that are in college is so much of what's causing their anxiety and depression is that that those words, I don't know what I'm going to do mm-hmm. when I graduate. I don't know if I'm going to have the money to start next semester. I don't know why my parents are expecting this. I don't know. And that that was just increasing so much their anxiety in the future. And so I think our young folks need to hear us say as adults, I don't know, Um, but that we know the God of hope who does know. That's right. Our future and Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans that I have established for you, says the Lord, and that we don't have to figure out right now in this moment what we're going to do or what our future is going to hold. We just have to figure out how to keep stepping one moment at a time, Mm -hmm. uh, despite the things that we are um, experiencing. even in the context of all those maybe messy things that we're experiencing, that we keep stepping and that we stay connected to people who love us um, and that we don't isolate. And so I think we mm. I think you're spot on with that, Sarah, um, with let, letting them see and hear our mess ups, um, letting them learn forgiveness from us and saying, you know, I didn't handle that great. Um, and then hearing us say, I don't know. And it's OK if you don't have all the answers right now either. So I think those are some of the pivotal things um, to help build hope and resilience in our young folks. I love that. Well, thank you, Terry. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I know that, um, Sarah, on your website, you have resources available. Um, People can find out more about your story. And then on the Overflow website, you have mental health first aid classes and resources to the mental health care options that Sarah mentioned. Whenever it's time to look for the mental health care, if your child is um, self-harming or they've expressed thoughts of suicide, all those resources are available on your website. And so we will be sure to link to those, both Sarah's website and the Overflow website for those resources. Um, Well, ladies, thank you again for joining us on the Cedar Creek Church podcast. It's been a pleasure and very informative. This is one of those podcast episodes that I will be saving and downloading on my phone. Um, It applies to me now as a mom of three little ones, and I know it's going to apply to me in the years to come as they go on the world of social media in teenage years. So thank you again. And listeners, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And then it's been another great resource within our series, Keeping Hope in Mind. We'll be back next week with a new episode.